What kind of finale could possibly do justice not only to the awe-inspiring words of the text, but to the remarkable music that came before? Nothing less than the triumph of life over death is conceived here. The finale is to provide an answer to the terrifying existential questions related in Mahler's program notes that are evoked in the preceding movements. The inspired music in and by which Mahler provides us with that answer has thrilled and uplifted audiences the world over. His music stirs the very depths of the soul with its profound yearning for meaning and purpose in life and for redemption from human suffering. With the finale, Mahler advanced symphonic form to new and impressive heights. He enlarged the orchestra to a degree that only Berlioz or Wagner could have envisioned before him, utilizing enormous brass forces and enhanced percussion. He employs the most advanced spatial effects, such as an offstage band, echo effects, and directional sound placement. His transformation of the simplest sounds of nature and military fanfares into sublime abstractions goes far beyond his efforts in Das Klagenderlied, the First Symphony, and the Wunderhorn Lieder. Just as compelling as the overpowering moments for full orchestra are the more intimate passages for diverse chamber groups. Mahler's handling of vocal forces is just as skillful and inventive, particularly in the juxtaposition of choral sections. He combines traditional stylistic elements such as a majestic Bachian chorale with Wagnerian declamatory outbursts. He makes yet another innovation by adding his own words to the poetical text. Not only are his supplemental verses evidence of literary talent, but they perfectly parallel the Klopstock Ode while providing a personal vision of the meaning of redemption. Structurally, Mahler combines various elements of sonata form in the purely instrumental first part of the movement, using musical material that he will apply more comprehensively during the concluding choral section. At first hearing, the movement seems to be constructed in loosely connected episodes, organized in arbitrary sequence. Yet as the movement proceeds, it becomes apparent that an overall structural design was carefully worked out on a vast scale. Rather than merely stretching out classical structures to fit the dramatic text, Mahler conceived of the, of the ground plan, as Lagrange suggests, as a long sequence of metaphysical questions and answers. Thematic and motivic references to earlier movements are interspersed neatly throughout the movement, rather than presented at the outset, as in the finale of Beethoven's Ninth. This referential material functions not only as musical flashbacks, but as a validation of the prophetic visions expressed in the earlier movements. Principal keys function in a similar manner. The grandiose key of E-flat major in the closing section virtually overcomes the tragic character of the relative C minor of the first movement. Thus, a progressive tonality reinforces the sense that in the closing moments of the finale, an answer is offered to the metaphysical questions prompted by the music of the opening movement. Notwithstanding the many conceptual and musical references to the first symphony, there is a fundamental difference in orientation between the two works. In the finale of the first symphony, Mahler's approach to redemption is much in the nature of pure medieval romance, an epic tale of a hero engaged in battle against the forces of evil. The struggle between opposing forces is confined to the finale, which takes up half of the symphony and contains its principal conceptual argument. In the second symphony, the orientation is more spiritual. Faith in God's promise of redemption will overcome the finality of death. Here, the principal argument is contained in the outer movements, while the middle movements serve as divertissement. Yet they contain references to the first and last movements, providing a means by which to recollect the conflict at issue and hint at its resolution. The finale opens with a powerful outburst, ushered in by a rapid ascending run in low strings that is cut off by a pizzicato note. There is a similarity between this opening and its counterpart in the finale of the first symphony. In both, the full orchestra enters by ricocheting off an initial stroke. In the second's finale, the orchestral outburst explodes immediately after the pizzicato with a cataclysmic B-flat minor chord, 
recalling the portentous episode inserted in the reprise of the scherzo's B section. The ascending rapid scale in low strings that begins this movement also relates to the 16th note runs from the opening of the first movement. The orchestral outburst that follows is akin to the cry of a wounded soul at the beginning of the first symphony's finale. A stentorian trumpet call emerges from this enormous orchestral eruption, heralding the day of final judgment. It contains four basic elements, a three-note figure consisting of a rising minor third followed by a falling minor sixth, three tones rising diatonically, two triplets based upon the first two elements, and repeating trochaic long-short figures on Mahler's favorite interval, the fourth. The first of these four elements will be transformed into the light motif of the Eighth Symphony, and the last will appear in several later Mahler symphonies, notably the Third and Ninth. This resounding trumpet call signifies the dreaded vision of the end of the world, but it also represents the heroic aspect of man's efforts to overcome the power of death. At this point, a slight pause leads to a change of meter from the rapid three-eighth time to a more measured and steady common time, four beats to the bar. C major is firmly established. Horns and woodwinds combine on an embryonic version of the resurrection theme over a rolling figure in low strings. Mahler adds an interesting touch to this rhythmic figure by stressing the last three-sixteenths of each grouping. After the tempestuous opening measures, the music calms down on a falling three-note figure in anapestic rhythm, short, short, long. This rhythm is repeated three times in violins on a diminished seventh chord, bringing the opening section to a half cadence in an all-too-brief, blissful moment. Out of the mysterious atmosphere that envelops the music as it descends to a sustained low C comes a new section. Mahler referred to it as Der Rufer in den Wist, the caller in the wilderness. It begins with a simple horn call for which Mahler designated the greatest possible number of horns, played forcefully and placed at a great distance. The horns are placed off stage to create this sense of distance, as if coming from a higher plane. Their call begins on a rising fifth, which some have suggested sounds like the call of the shofar during the Jewish high holiday services. A slow variant on triplet rhythms from the scherzo movement and the middle section of Urlicht follows in the oboe. Trumpets and horns play these tattoo-like triplets more broadly, recalling their appearance during the opening. A harp extends the triplets into a C major codetta that closes this segment in heavenly repose, though somewhat tainted by mournful trombones on a fragment of the terror motive. Night descends as the music gently falls into the bass and soft timpani strokes gradually slow down the tempo, 
Out of the silence that follows comes a version of the Dies Irae chorale in F minor, played softly by woodwinds. It appeared during the funeral march of the first movement, but now has lost its tragic character, sounding more solemn and majestic. After the woodwind choir, the Dies Irae theme is extended on music of heroic bearing by trombone and then trumpet that anticipate the resurrection theme that will be sung by the chorus much later on. Horns introduce a new segment that develops the trumpet tattoos that emerge from the opening orchestral explosion. Philip Barford suggests that they sound like Gabriel's summoning of the legions of death. Woodwinds accompany fragments of the Dies Irae with the Scherzo's triplet figuration as offstage horns intone the call in the wilderness. Night again descends. The section closes in the same manner as when we first heard the Dies Irae theme. Against hushed string tremolos, a new section begins with yet another summons. This time it is on the falling second of woe, recalling its appearance in the opening movement. Overlapping cries of the terror motive urge the music on as the pace quickens. An inversion of the woe motive on a rising dotted rhythm, played first by clarinets, gives the impression of a pitiful cry of despair, akin to the cry of the wounded soul heard at the beginning of the movement. The music becomes increasingly chaotic, strewn with wild cries of woe. A turn figure is added as the music drives forward in a state of maddening confusion until it reaches a climax on woodwinds shrieking cries of woe. Its energies spent, these cries sink into the low brass and peter out on a faint timpani roll. After another moment of silence, a definitive statement of the Dies Irae theme, now in D-flat major, is softly and solemnly intoned 
by an unaccompanied brass choir. Becoming stronger and increasingly energetic, the Dies Irae Chorale ends with the forceful entrance of a sustained tone that suddenly softens and then builds into a full cadence. At its height, woodwinds and strings enter assertively with a dotted rhythmic upbeat that ushers in the return of the contrasting heroic theme that followed the woodwinds' treatment of the Dies Irae Chorale earlier. This time, however, the heroic horn calls embellish the continuation of the Dies Irae theme, as well as the caller in the wilderness motive, mightily asserted by trumpets and trombones. Sounding like music for a regal procession, this passage recalls the pomp and grandeur of the opening funeral rites movement without any of its tragic character. Trumpets and horns present the Auferstehen theme for the very first time over a volley of horn and trumpet calls in C major, hinting at ultimate triumph. Triplet figuration from the scherzo returns in woodwinds and strings to accompany the caller in the wilderness. This dynamic passage fades away on rustling string triplets that fall to the bass until only an augmented couplet of half-note triplets is heard in the lowest range of the harp and double bass. The twinkling trills and arpeggiated chords that ended the initial appearance of this segment are now absent. This time, the descent into darkness is no longer soothing, but ominous and bleak. Soon, only faint sounds of tam-tams and a soft timpani roll can be heard. We are about to enter the development section. Here Mahler creates a transitional passage unique for its time. A ground swell slowly develops in the percussion, crescendoing gradually to immense proportions of unbearable cacophony never heard before in symphonic music. At the height of this overwhelming percussive onslaught, the development section begins. In a majestic tempo, deliberately restrained, we hear the motive of terror lashing out from the depths of the orchestra at the height of the percussion's onslaught. Immediately begins a wild allegro section in F minor, known as the March of the Resurrected. This grotesquely demonic music sounds like a furious devil's dance worthy of Berlioz, Clip dotted rhythms from the first movement and whiplash upbeats create a terrifying rhythmic upheaval within which thematic variants of the Dies Irae theme and the terror motive wildly lash out from one section of the orchestra to another. 
This brutal march is extended with a momentary appearance of the terror motive in trumpets and a powerful statement of the Dies Irae theme in woodwinds and strings. When the key changes to F major, the march, combining elements of both the Dies Irae theme and the terror motive, reaches its height. Trumpets assert the first full statement of the Alferstein theme set against rigorous march rhythms. The Dies Irae theme now takes on a martial character, invigorated by clip-dotted rhythms that urge the theme forward. The march continues unabated, yet subjected to a variety of permutations and combinations with violent rhythmic features, such as the whiplash of hurtling upbeats that open this segment. As the march presses forward, it sounds more and more like the closing section of the first movement's development. Bells of indeterminate pitch ring out against the steady march rhythm, as horns with their bells held high give out a mighty statement of the transformed Deus Irae theme. Riveting rhythms, driving intensity and raw power drive home the immensity of this passage. A magnificent climax crowns a mighty statement of the Deus Irae theme, played by trumpets and trombones against the rugged clip-dotted rhythms of the march. Here the chorale theme sounds like a defiant pronouncement of the final decree, as if foreordained, a fragment of the brass chorale theme from the first movement returns. The brass developed the Dies Irae and Alferstein themes at length and with unrelenting power. As the music approaches a cadence on a long retard, it is cut off by a pause, after which the terrifying outburst that opened the movement returns, now in more rapid tempo. Trumpets and trombones assert the violent terror motive in elongated rhythms that make it sound even more terrifying. Periodic waves of ascending chromatic triplets hurtle downward in woodwinds, as if fleeing in terror. According to Mahler's own notations on a sketch of this passage, he intended us to witness nothing less than the total disintegration of life's orderly existence. As this cataclysmic passage concludes, we are left with nothing but the soft rumblings of a timpani roll. Once again, the tempo slackens as the motive of woe sounds haltingly on a solo trombone over hushed string tremolos. Cries of despair are repeated in swelled tones on woodwinds as a mournful response to the trombone's dolorous call.
now begins an abbreviated reprise of the section that first introduced these motives during the exposition. When the cellos enter, they refashion a segment of the vocal line from the middle section of Urlicht. This melodic variant will serve as the principal theme of a new section leading to the climax of the orchestral portion of the finale. As the tempo presses forward more intently, an offstage military band of trumpets, triangle, cymbals, and bass drum presents a series of military signals based upon heroic horn calls heard earlier. They evoke disturbing memories of the struggles of the first movement. This offstage martial music contrasts markedly with the cello's lyrical melody, haunted by the woodwind's mournful cries of despair. Although the cello theme is lyrical in character, its fragmented construction and shifting duple and triple meters make it sound like a recitative. Frequent falling seconds, the motive of woe, sound like impassioned pleas for God's mercy. Violins take up and extend the cello's new theme in shifting meters against stronger, though intermittent, trumpet calls that press forward as if into battle. While the pleading theme continues to develop, the offstage trumpet calls are silenced momentarily. Shifting meters and weak beat accents keep the music off balance. When the trumpet calls return, the violin's pleading theme gives way to repeated offbeat cries of woe that lead to a trumpet volley of descending chromatic triplets which pull the music downward. Emerging as if from an abyss, the pleading theme is heard once again in the depths of the brass. It no longer sounds like a fervent prayer for salvation, but a terrifying pronouncement of fate. The pleading theme now turned against itself, becomes increasingly threatening as the tempo continues to press forward as if to the brink of disaster. Cries of despair wail out, prophetic of the end of days, as the music drives relentlessly to its own doom. Timpani strokes played at different parts of succeeding bars create a sense of deranged frenzy, as if striking repeatedly and uncontrollably at the very firmament that holds the universe together. Utter chaos reigns. The tension becomes unbearable. When it seems that the music is about to virtually go mad, an enormous orchestral explosion drives the tempo forward to a fever pitch. In a shattering climax, we are confronted with nothing less than the dreaded apocalypse, the end of days that Mahler envisioned in his moving program. Here unleashed in music of terrifying ferocity, an unimaginable power. Graves burst open, the dead arise and stream forth in endless procession. Against an enormous welter of percussion, horns and trumpets blast out the terror motive, summoning the tortures envisioned as part of the eschatology that surrounds the Day of Judgment. What we witness here is the reprise of the finale's opening cataclysm, generated not from low rumblings in the bass as before, but from a wildly chaotic aggregation of polyphony. The tempo veritably runs amok until it pulls back to our relief, as the trombone's dynamic summons heralds a new dawn. Its transfigured terror motive recalls the bright C major tune that introduced the heroic theme in the finale of the first symphony. Notice the repeated rising and falling fourths in the brass theme. Harmonically, the passage essentially restates the opening section, transformed one half-step higher. Mm -hmm. 
What you have just heard may very well be the most terrifying music ever written. With the appearance of the terror motive in the context of such an orchestral conflagration, it would seem logical to conclude that we have reached the recapitulation, since the exposition began with that motive. After the grave opening scene ends, and the final bars of the terror motive sink to the depths in trombones, the music finally calms down and moves into a new section, beginning on a hushed D-flat chord over a quiet timpani roll. The falling fifths of the caller in the wilderness softly echo in horns. Cellos in their high register virtually whisper the resurrection theme that was first hinted at after the orchestral outburst that opened the movement. The atmosphere is aglow with a halo of divinity. The oboe plays a much broader version of the resurrection theme, while the cellos continue with their version of it. It soon passes to violins and then horns. What we are witnessing here is an attenuated version of the music that followed the cataclysmic explosion of the opening of the movement, now without rumbling sounds in low strings. Soon the music fades away into bass strings over the soft roll of timpani and bass drum. Mahler designates the section that follows as Der Grosse Appel, the Great Summons. Here Mahler uses both on-stage and off-stage ensembles to provide spatial dimension. The music virtually surrounds the audience, as if providing a connecting link between heaven and earth. The atmosphere is calm, yet imbued with a sense of otherworldliness. This moment of repose serves as a transition to the first appearance of the chorus. It consists mostly of musical material presented earlier in the call in the wilderness, but played in cadenza-like fashion in a variety of tempos, sometimes very slowly, as during the opening horn calls, and at other times very rapidly, with sudden bursts of trumpet tattoos. The opening horn calls are essentially those heard in the earlier section, now extended in the trumpet. Bird sounds and flutterings in flute and piccolo evoke not death, but a vision of life everlasting. These sounds of nature contrast with a volley of rapid trumpet tattoos coming from different locations in the hall. The contrast of bird song and military tattoos recalls the opening movement of the first symphony. As the segment concludes, a trumpet plays the first three notes of the terror motive against bird calls, evoking a feeling that despite the apocalyptic vision we had just witnessed earlier, we need not fear death, for redemption is at hand.
As the last sustained chord of the offstage band gradually dies away, an a cappella chorus, remaining seated, softly and tentatively whispers the Alferstein theme, as if from another world. The theme is directly related to the opening bars of Urlicht and to the Dies Irae theme, which ties it to the first movement. Subtle hints of the theme were also incorporated into the development section and the fourth movement. It is one of the most celestial moments in Mahler's music and is a precursor of the chorus mysticus from the Eighth Symphony. Overlapping the theme's cadence, first violins give the upbeat to the return of the heroic horn calls that first appeared during the exposition. Here they are played very broadly, but in hushed tones. These horn calls carry the trumpet statement of the resurrection theme forward and provide a counterweight to further development of the Alferstein chorale. A trumpet figure from the Call in the Wilderness section serves as an upbeat to further extension of the Alphastein theme, here played in trumpets against the rising resurrection theme in the violins. These two themes blend into each other seamlessly. The chorus returns to continue the Alferstein theme's development in hushed solemnity at a slow pace. Each part of the theme is surrounded by commas, rests, or interrupted by fermatas, as if to emphasize each aspect. Meters shift between duple and triple, as if time were no longer fixed. As the theme rises to a full cadence, the soprano soloist is heard above the throng.
When the orchestra takes over in more regularized common time, the resurrection theme appears in overlapping sequences, finally climbing to heavenly heights on two solo violins and flutes. We seem to have found heavenly peace at last. But memories of profound suffering remain. Soon, muted tremolos and violas create an air of mystery that holds us in suspense pending the final apotheosis. A fervent prayer for redemption must yet be offered to heaven, and Mahler provides it in his own words. The woe motive returns, sung by the alto soloist to the words O Glaube, and extended on Mein Herz O Glaube. As the tempo presses forward, the alto sings the same melodic phrase the orchestra played earlier. Cries of despair again evoke fear and trembling. Fragmented phrases in the vocal line give the impression of a soul in torment pleading for salvation. Violas in high register take up the melody from the alto in mid-course and pass it on to the cellos. The tonality shifts to the minor, connoting fate as this segment ends. Then the soprano solo enters with a variant of the O Glauba theme, the first part of which is based upon the resurrection theme. Her solo ends before reaching a full cadence, as did the alto soloist's last line in Urlicht. A solo violin extends the melodic line further, ending on the motive of woe. A rising chromatic sequence of tremolos in violas carried upward on a long harp glissando bring back the chorus. As if emerging from the depths, low voices softly and slowly intone the Alferstein theme to the dark sound of trombones against a soft high trill in the violins. Then suddenly the male chorus, soon joined only by the alto soloist, bursts out abruptly with the very words that promise redemption, thus vergängen Alferstein. A heavenly brass chorale emerges on a church-like cadence and then quickly fades into silence, setting the stage for the return of the home key, E-flat major. After a brief pause, male voices sing the Alferstein theme softly and mysteriously. Trombones bring the theme to a full cadence. Altos join the male chorus to repeat the words they first sang alone. This brief passage functions almost like a dialogue, a grouping of four fragmentary phrases, each separated by a short pause, sounding like a solemn pronouncement from on high. It is the call of the heavenly host. The first line, Herauf zu beben, is sung twice, each time with tender compassion, as if whispered by an angel. Then the male chorus, a cappella, shouts out a summons to all humankind, Bereite dich, prepare yourself. 
This command is extended and sung more slowly and calmly by the full chorus, with the alto soloist rising above them as she did at the close of Ulicht. In a sudden burst of emotion, violins enter on a rising dotted rhythmic upbeat that would be expected to lead to the same heroic music heard earlier. But instead of ushering in horn calls that would propel the resurrection theme to new heights, the violins assert a variation of that theme played against a rising phrase on four horns with which the resurrection theme begins, thus clearing the way for a vocal duet. Anticipation intensifies as the music becomes more energetic, the alto and soprano sing an impassioned dialogue in great agitation on rising and falling scales from the resurrection theme that mirror the text's reference to soaring aloft. As the tempo increases, the tension mounts. The soloists join together on the words Zum Licht, Zum den Kein Augegrungen, sung to an elongated version of the same phrase to which the alto soloist sang the words Wird mir ein Lichtchen geben, God will give me light, from the Ehrlich movement. Thus Ehrlich's promise of redemption is now fulfilled. As the vocal duet ends, bass voices enter softly on the resurrection theme, over which violins and flute play an inverted version of it. Gradually, the music presses forward as the resurrection theme and its variant are transferred from one section of the orchestra to another over harp arpeggios. Each section of the chorus enters as the music rises higher until trumpets and trombones hail the light of eternal life with a glorious invocation of resurrection, cut off in midstream by a sudden pause. A magnificent choral statement of the resurrection theme is now stated broadly. It concludes on a sustained reverse swell sung on the word Laban as woodwinds reassert the resurrection theme. The tempo slows down as we approach the coda. This coda is not merely an extension of material from the recapitulation, but the ultimate culmination of the movement and the entire symphony, a structural deviation from traditional symphonic form. As is the custom, the chorus stands at this point to hail the advent of redemption on the Alphastean theme sung with overwhelming power in a weighty tempo, 
against the orchestral version of the same theme in trumpets and trombones. Arise, yea, arise you will, my heart, in a trice. These words resound with the joy of longing fulfilled. We have overcome the terrifying visions of the opening movement and the vulgarities of the scherzo and risen to the heavenly heights of eternal glory. Suddenly the tempo increases as the chorus extends the Alferstein theme and horns and trumpets assert the resurrection theme as a summons from on high. The full chorus calls to God with ever greater fervor on a sequence of three-note phrases that seems to answer the short couplet sung to the words Ich bin von Gott und will wieder zu Gott heard during Ulicht. A simple faith has conquered the fear of everlasting torment and won through to eternal peace. With the concluding line of text, the final apotheosis is reached in an overwhelming climax for full orchestra and chorus. The long retard ends with one of the most magnificent cadences in all of music. To reach such a glorious moment, it was well worth enduring the painful emotions evoked during the earlier movements. In the finale, and especially its closing section, the dreadful questions of the first movement are answered in the fulfillment of God's light and love. The orchestra alone will provide the denouement. As the bells resound with the glory of redemption, brass sound the resurrection theme in stretto-like entrances that sound like reverberating clarion calls. In a more agitated tempo, this theme is pronounced very broadly in the depths of the orchestra and repeated more urgently by bass strings and woodwinds diminishing rapidly on string tremolos. But there will be no quiet ending for this glorious work. For the orchestra explodes with joy on a powerful sustained E-flat major chord against which trumpets play the first two notes of the resurrection theme twice, and they then increase the interval from a sixth to a full octave in preparation for the long closing chord that resonates with the massive sound of all ten horns and ends with a sharp stroke. Mahler will use a similar device at the close of his Eighth Symphony. If Mahler set out to write a choral symphony in the image of Beethoven's Great Ninth, he not only succeeded, but in many respects surpassed his famous predecessor. Even Mahler was astounded at what he achieved in the final chorus. He said, The soaring development and upward wave is here so immense, so unprecedented, that afterwards I did not know myself how I could have arrived at it. The power and majesty of the conclusion is so overwhelming that those who come to Mahler for the first time through this work usually become Mahlerians for life. It is a remarkable achievement. 